When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So everyone, I need to tell you a story. Um, I, I have now, I now have a new job. I've decided um, working in corporate America for 15 years, then leaving corporate America and then in COVID starting a podcast and being a podcaster. But then I realized the other day, I'm like, you know what? I have I have another job and this other job really makes me angry because I'm not getting paid for it. And I, I'm now starting my own company. And let me tell you what this job is. So I'm a mom, which I talk about often. I'm also dealing with um, a tween who is newly turned 12. And when I wake her up in the morning, she says, get out. <laughs> and, um, and so that's really fun to deal with. And then, um, so I, so, you know, I do my stuff during the day. A lot of it involves like my podcast and researching and, um, believe it or not, I'm starting a book. I don't know if it will ever be done because I have a problem with procrastination, but when I'm not doing that, I am an Uber driver. I am an Uber driver. And when I tell you I'm an Uber driver, I'm not like a regular Uber driver. I'm a Moober driver, which means I'm a mom Uber and I don't get paid for my driving because all I do is drive my kids from school to horseback riding, to voice lessons, to um, play dates, to um, what else? Soccer, soccer every day. It's just, it's so overwhelming. And I literally am like the other day I was complaining to my husband because he's the one, you know, he's the breadwinner. He's going and he's in real estate doing his deals every day. And I was like, this is so hard. I'm a Uber driver now. I just drive my kids everywhere. So I've decided I'm going to get one of those signs on top of my car, <laughs> make money, not really. And maybe I should have some gum and some um, plugs like so they can plug their phones in and some waters for for them for their rides because that's basically all I am. And I am going to start the show. Well, hello, everybody. You are listening to Judging Megan with your host, Megan Judge. Um, I am honored today to have Dr. Kevin J. Payne on the podcast. His um, his background is not impressive at all. Um, I just want you to know that. Start out with that. He is a so- social psychologist, a speaker. He is a he's a skydiver, which I cannot wait to talk about because I am even, I'm afraid to jump off of like a small wall. Um, he also is deal, um, dealing with a chronic diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. So we're going to get into that. 
I think I left off podcaster. I'm always out here to support my fellow podcasters. And everything that you you can find Kevin under is Your Life Lived Well, with, which is also his podcast. So welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you so much, Megan. <laughs> I, I will try to live up to that glowing introduction. And I was just laughing here during your story, commiserating with it. My you, kids are older. Okay. So, but you were, know, you, were you a, duder, a duber? You were a duber. A dad would be a duber. I was a duber. Yeah. You were a duber. Yeah. But back yeah. then they didn't have duber. They didn't have Uber. You know, I missed it by that much. But, yeah. but I do have some friends who are Uber drivers and uh-huh. Lyft drivers. Uh-huh. And it, it's not a career I would recommend. Oh, so I, yeah, I feel it's got to be hard, this. but they're at least driving and getting paid. I'm they like, are. I'm driving from like thing to thing to thing to thing, and I'm not getting paid. And so my husband's like, well, you are getting paid because that this is your job and I give you money. And so it's a whole thing, but I'm, I'm oh, glad. Oh, that, those dynamics need discussions. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, we've yeah. had discussions. Believe me, I was the, I was the, um, the, I worked in corporate America for 15 years. Thankfully I did well. And now I've kind of taken a step back and he was, he, he is an actor, but then he started doing real estate and he's super busy with that. So, you know, the, the little, we've had a little shift in, and we're trying to work that out. And, um, unfortunately I enjoy spending money and shopping. So that's a whole separate topic that, that we could go in. <laughs> well, I grew show. up on stage, so I totally get that. I did. I grew oh. up on stage. And, and and I'm still a pirate. I, I, I actually have a crew of 22 trained pirate reenactors, and we go out and we do all kinds of interesting gigs, right? Everything from the G-rated kitty stuff to uh, R-rated pirate pub extravaganza. So, oh my gosh! You, okay, so, yeah, so I, I left I left that off in your in your intro that you're also a part a pirate part time. You can't right, leave, you can't leave but, that but, off. No, we prefer to be called extreme entrepreneurs. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I yeah. own that. Own that. So yeah. I'm just going to start, Kevin, with um, I want to find out all about Kevin. I want to find out where you're born, where you're from. I always love the backstory. Um, so do you mind sharing that with me? Sure. Glad to. Wouldn't it be awkward if if I came on your show and said, no, I don't want you to know about my my super secret double op spy past. Well, that would be like a 10 minute show that might never air. (laughs) No kidding. No. So I was, I was born and raised in Missouri in the Kansas city area. And my family has been in Missouri for a long time. They, they came here between 1831 and 1866 and just stayed. So yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of probably kind of creepy that I know that. But, uh, have you been in, doing your 23 and me? Is that how you know all of that? Or well, I did that actually, you know, in the, in the late nineties, I was, I was, uh, late nineties, early two thousands. I was still a professor and I was on faculty at the university of Missouri. And my office was a short walk to the state genealogical depository. So I got really curious and would like take breaks and go over there and started going through the records and, and piecing together my family's history because I was the kid that 
when I was a little kid, like in the 70s and, and in the 80s, I would sit down with the oldest members of my family with a tape recorder, starting out with a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and have them tell stories about oh, our family. You're and, so and smart. So, you're so smart. Oh, I, I will tell you this, and I hate to pivot and interrupt like your backstory, but no, we lost me. We lost my my aunt recently, and she um she my dad passed when I was a little girl, but she was like the last of it was just my dad and her were the only siblings. And obviously my grandmother and grandfather Mm -hmm. have been gone quite a while. Um, But we didn't, I didn't know the history. And so there's like my, my older sister has been like opening boxes and like finding out stuff. And so one of my biggest regrets is actually that I didn't ask more questions and I didn't know things about my family. I think it's really interesting and really important to know your history, you know, and yeah. know about where your what what your roots are and where you're from. Yeah, so like I've got stories my my father's oldest sibling was born in 1920. And Aunt Faye was was old enough to remember their grandpa Wes in the house with him and he was a civil war vet. And so, you know, because he had passed before my dad came along. But I've got her telling stories of, you know, that he told her about the Civil War. And That's and amazing. Was, yeah, it, it is just completely amazing. Well, so I, I love that. I love that you know that information. And most people don't. And I think that it is it is important for, you know, kids to ask about like the history. The problem is in my family, we're just like, oh, we were Irish. We're Irish. I'm like, okay, well, are we're Irish and Italian? Well, we know a lot about my Italian side, but I'm 75% Irish on my dad's side and my mom's half Irish, but I don't really know anything else. And so I do love that you're, you're, you have that information. So you grew up in Missouri. Uh, one of my dearest friends, since I was 15 years old, Wendy Walters lives in Missouri. Shout out Wendy. Um, and tell me about your childhood. What was it like? So, yeah, I was uh, a, a typical, you know, I was born in the sixties, a child of the seventies, came of age in the eighties, you know, that sort of thing. And, and my father, when I was little was a union truck driver and through my childhood, he worked his way up through and and into management. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we lived in the suburbs of Kansas City in Independence, Missouri. And I had a, a pretty comfortable childhood. Uh, my, my parents wanted a big family and they only got me. So they, they did the best they could because I was all they had to work with. And, and that meant that I was fortunate enough to have very devoted parents who tried to make everything available to me that I was interested in. So, you know, my mom was a musician. She was a pianist and an organist. And I was interested in music as a kid. I loved performing and I loved acting. And so they made it possible for me to you know, pursue those things. 
So I, so I grew up on stage doing those things. I also had two other fascinations as a kid. I loved the sciences. So I, I loved math and science. I remember a kid of the Apollo era. So I'm, I'm very interested in all things up in the sky. Uh-huh. And, and I also wanted to become a skydiver. Since you were a, a kid. kid. Yeah, since I was a kid. I, I, my grandmother and I went to a, a little air show at a, at a small airport when I was a kid. Probably 78 or so, 79, something like that. And <clears throat> the planes were cool. But around midday, this little Cessna comes cruising low over the airport with a guy hanging onto the strut. And he lets go. And he opens a parachute. And the cool thing about it was when it opened, it was square. It was what we call a square now. It was a rectangular parachute or a ram air parachute. And those were still pretty new in the 70s because most people were still jumping rounds. Squares hadn't been invented. They hadn't been invented in the 60s. So this is the first time I saw it. And he didn't just drop out of the sky, but he flew it like a glider. And he whizzed over us and landed on target. And I thought, wow, that is the coolest thing ever. I want to learn to do that. So, so yeah, as a little kid, I, I loved performing and I loved science. And uh, I loved the idea of becoming skydiving. That's and- amazing. Usually, because uh, I told you before we recorded, so my husband's an actor and I was a musical theater major in college and acted my whole life, mm-hmm. did theater. Um, usually people are like right or left brained, you know, they don't, Mm -hmm. uh, most theater people are not into science and that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that. You obviously have the whole brain going and also you're a daredevil. I'm weird. I, you know, you (laughs) know what I really think? I, I think it is, it is as simple as this. I think that life is about collecting experiences. Uh And I have always been fascinated. I've been fascinating those things. And as you can tell, with me sitting down with the elders in my family at a young age, I was always interested in people. So, you know, I just, I like meeting new people. I like having new experiences. And that was one of the ways that my EMS eventually affected me. And I came to a point in my life where I was starting to close myself off in the world because my body had betrayed me in so many ways. That is the thing that I became most terrified of. Well, the let's talk about that. I don't, I don't, I don't want to skip ahead and I'm sorry to interrupt sure. you, no, but I want to ask you because you, you, you got the MS diagnosis in 99. Am I wrong on that date? Well, in, so I was, I was first symptomatic in 89 in college. Okay. And then I finally got a con, the correct diagnosis in 2006. Okay. So, so growing up, you, we've talked about, you had the, the happy childhood, you know, you were curious, you knew what you wanted to do. Then you became a professor. You've had a lot of success with that. But you, in the, in 89, you started having symptoms. Tell me about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So in 89, so I'm, I'm 20 years old and I'm in college. And 
I, I started having some weird things happen to me. One, balance and vertigo issues. So I started getting wobbly. And I noticed this because I was taking a fencing class at the time. Because mm-hmm. I, I love fencing. You can see behind me on the wall. There, I, took the swords. I took yeah. fencing. I took fencing. In college, I was a theater major. So you have to take fencing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Lo- love that. Um, here's, if you look over there, there's one of my swords. And those are the pirate swords right there. Wow. So, so yeah, I, I, I was doing that, but I suddenly started becoming wobbly uh-huh. and, and I was tired in a way that I, that only was comparable to it. during the summer before my senior year in high school, I'd had a bad case of mononucleosis. And so I was tired in that way and I was cognitively foggy and I started having isocades which is kind of like when your eye stutters, mm-hmm. just kind of rapidly shifts back and forth. And I started itching everywhere for no reason. So I, I, I did this living with this for a couple of months and I was kind of getting down about the whole thing. And mm-hmm. so I, I went to the university physician and I think he fixated on what he expected to hear from a kid that age, because I was in a demanding honors program at the time. And he said, oh, you're depressed. Because he fixated on the I'm down about it and I'm cognitively foggy and that that sort of thing. Yeah. And and truthfully, back then, you know, no, nobody looked to MS in a 20-year-old at that time. Now we've we've got a better understanding of it, and we know it hits a lot of people earlier than we used to think it did. So he sent me to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, yes, it's major depression, here are some drugs. And the drugs didn't work. And so they said, here's some different drugs, and the drugs didn't work. And he said, here's some different drugs, and they didn't work. And so mm-hmm. he said, you are treatment-resistant which, of course, is the medical establishment's way of saying, we wash our hands of you, we give up. You're on your own. So a few months later, I was back to normal again. And everything except the itching had gone back to normal. So I just figured, oh, it was my wacky depression. And I went on and I I went to England and, and studied at Oxford and then came back and I was in grad school. And then I had those symptoms again. They just kind of came again. And I thought, oh, it's just my wacky depression again. Because I'm still a young were guy. They, the, they were the exact same symptoms, but they were years yeah. apart? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and and so what I, what I didn't know then is this is entirely characteristic of relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis. Yeah. So So after a few months, they were back to normal again except for the itching. And the itching has always stayed with me ever since. And so I continued my education and and got my doctorate and and became a professor in the late 90s. Then I have this incident again, and the symptoms are back and they're worse this time. And I really did get very depressed about it at that time. And I lost all of my normal habits and I kind of withdrew into myself And I gained, in the course of two years, I gained 120 pounds. No way. Way. 
got oh pictures. Yeah, I went from a 27-inch waist to barely fitting into a 46-inch band. Why and, is that? Just because you were eating? Just to, I, I, like, I stopped. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I was. I was yeah. yeah, I stopped exercising. I, I stopped cooking for myself, started eating out all the time, and probably was finding comfort in food, uh-huh. I suppose. And, and so suddenly one day, a couple of years later, I, I woke up and I walk into the bathroom and I look at myself and really saw myself for the first time in a while and, and said, oh, my gosh, I look like the guy who ate Kevin. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like a fog lifted and I felt better again for the first time in a while. And I went back to my old habits. And over the next two years, I lost 120 pounds again. And went back to myself. And that's so insane I, that you gained that much weight and you were able to lose it all. Yeah, that's it is crazy. weird. It's statistically anomalous because yeah. I I took that off and I've maintained around 150 pounds here for you know over 20 years. And and that's just almost unheard of. But so, that also just shows you how um like the brain is connected, like depression is connected with like pain and especially chronic pain. And, you know, people sometimes like give up and they throw themselves into, you know, drugs, alcohol, food, Mm -hmm. um, whatever it be, because they, there's, they're trying to deal with not facing the facts. And for you, it's, it had to have been awful because you were being told, no, you're fine. Or you're, there's nothing wrong with you. And obviously you were misdiagnosed for years and years and years. Yeah. Well, then it didn't, you know, finally then in 2002, I got some symptoms again, and mm-hmm. it was a little bit of the old ones. But this time I woke up one morning and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. It had just disappeared. And at first I thought it was weird uh, that I'd probably pinched a nerve lifting weights the day before. Yeah. And I didn't think a lot about it. And a few days later, it was back again. And then it was gone, and then it was back again, and then it was different parts of my body disappearing. And finally, one morning, I woke up, and I could feel my right arm and my head, but the rest of my body disappeared. And, and at that point, my then-wife said, I'm putting my foot down. You are going to go get this looked at. Yeah. And that set forth a comedy of medical errors, during which at one point they were saying, well, you'll be glad to know it's not multiple sclerosis. And then they did some more tests and they said, oh, surprise, it is. And it's been in your system for a long time. Oops. So so that was finally 2006 when I, when so I got. So what was that like diagnosis. getting that diagnosis? Was it, was it, it's got to be upsetting, but was it obviously upsetting? But was it also like, see, I'm not crazy. Like I, there was something wrong with me all of this time. Yeah. I, very much so. I mean, for of course, there's some of the the moon and the stars and all the firmament falling down on you, mm-hmm. and or or this feeling that the bottom has dropped out of your life and you're in free fall. But for the most part, my first reaction was relief because now I finally had a name, and it was something I could learn about, and it was something that I could be strategic against. Because now I knew what I was trying to overcome, what can I was you, trying to accommodate. 
Can you explain to my listeners what multiple sclerosis actually is? Sure. So MS is it's one of those conditions that most people have heard of, and very few people know what's actually going on because you don't have a reason to. There are about a million Americans right now with MS diagnosis, about 2.8 million with MS in the whole world, and it is a a chronic neurodegenerative autoimmune condition. So what does that mean? Chronic, it's not going to get better. A chronic condition technically, depending on who you ask, lasts between at least six, five, three to six months and often never goes away. And MS does not go away. There are no cures, despite whatever some well-meaning person may tell you. We do have disease-modifying therapies that help improve the overall course of the condition throughout its time. But essentially what's happening, so you got the autoimmune and neurodegenerative part of it. What they think now is that some of us have a genetic proclivity and there may be some environmental conditions that also contribute to your likelihood, but that then we are exposed to a very common virus that everybody has. And, and one of the, in fact, last month, there was a new study that was published that lends more credence to the idea that Epstein-Barr is one of the triggers. Now, 95% of all people on the planet have the Epstein-Barr virus in them. But what it means is someone like me, we get that virus and it causes our immune system to overreact and become confused. And in my case, my own immune system is attacking what's called the myelin in my central nervous system. Myelin is this fatty covering that protects the nerves in the white matter of our brain and spinal cord. So like in your house, if rats eat through the wiring, Mm -hmm. right? If they eat through that rubber covering, well, then the wires will short circuit and the signals will degrade and, and all of that. And so that's what's happening. So multiple sclerosis literally means many scars. And the technical definition of multiple sclerosis is if you have at least two episodes of scarring in your brain and spinal cord from at least two different times. Got it. That's so, and so uh, people with MS have all different kinds of, um, you bet because, because everything we do think, feel, say, hope, dream, all of it passes through our central nervous system. Yeah. So if I have damage, say where pain is being processed, then I'm going to have chronic pain and I do have chronic pain. If I have damage where my legs are, are being controlled, I'm going to have difficult walking difficult time walking, right? If I have damage in an emotional center, then my emotions are going to become labile and and unconnected to reality. So these symptoms can literally be almost anything. My baseline is chronic pain, chronic fatigue, uh, chronic numbness and parathesias, you know, throughout my body, like the itching, uh, and cog fog. 
cognitive fogginess. Yeah. And and then I have another 30 symptoms that come and go depending on distress and external triggers like heat or cold or, you know, just how my internal weather is going that particular day. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. This time of year is the worst. I feel like I can't do anything and I can't enjoy my dinner because I can't taste my food and I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even feel like I can host this show because my voice sounds like a duck. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D, designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out. I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. So you so you are living with MS. There's no cure that there's this is obviously a common condition which you know you hear different conditions and I never knew like itching I never would have thought some of those like I never knew that so thank you for explaining that um are have you ever been in a wheelchair unable to walk or had I I have had a few transient periods where my legs have frozen up on me and uh, one of them actually relates to my skydiving story. As a matter of fact, a few years back, I was going through a really nasty exacerbation with my MS. And I was trying to be careful. And and often with MS, we have heat sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, excessive heat will cause our symptoms to trigger. And sometimes excessive cold will cause our symptoms to trigger. So I've had heat sensitivity for like 15 years. I've had cold sensitivity for maybe the last four or five. But I was out mowing my lawn and I was, I thought I was being respectful of myself. It's a beautiful summer day and I'm, I'm mowing and evidently I, I push myself a little too far. And one of the things that you have to learn with MS is when you are quote unquote normally healthy, we can generally push ourselves a bit past where we think we could normally go. But with MS, those limits become hard and fast. They're non-negotiable. And so I pushed myself over the limit. Suddenly, I felt like a, a swarm of electric hornets was stinging me all over my body. The pain became overwhelming. My legs froze up, and I fell backward. 
and I'm paralyzed there on the ground. Unfortunately, the mower has one of those, you know, dead man switches on it. You let go of it and it stops. Right. Or it would have rolled down the hill back over me. Yeah. So that would really suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I pass out from the pain. And couldn't have been more than maybe a minute later, I wake up and it's like this swirly, really was like a TV sitcom, this swirly coming back into view. And I'm looking up at this beautiful blue sky and I have, and I'm paralyzed on the ground and I have this errant thought through my head, wow, looks like a beautiful day for skydiving. And then I laughed because I thought I am never going to skydive again. Oh. And I gave up. At that moment. Well, let me let me ask you. So you were you were a, you've been a professor for many years, um, correct? You for I did that for fifteen years. 15 yeah, and years. I left the academy about a decade ago now. Exactly a decade ago now. Okay, and now you um, you are. I have been a startup tech entrepreneur for the last decade. Wow! So you must have some stories. <laughs> Oh, I do. And and there is there is actually a technology that's coming out that goes with your life lived well also. So that goes with what? I'm sorry. Your life lived well. That goes with the book and the podcast oh. and the seminars and all that. There's oh gosh, I can't wait to hear about that. In about a year. Okay, so, so let me ask you. So let's talk about your skydiving. When did mm-hmm. you start doing it? So as a little kid, I, I started, I climbed everything that I possibly could mm-hmm. and and as high as I could, you know, and jumped off as long as I thought, oh, I could probably survive this. And and I bent myself up pretty good sometimes. And I made some of my own parachutes and they never worked. And and so I, I, I realized that I'm going to need to get some real equipment and some real training. So as a young man in the 90s, when I was working on my doctorate, I decided I've waited long enough and I'm going to go get the training. And back then... Tandem skydivings, you know, tandem skydives, which is how normally most people do their first skydives now, yeah, uh, weren't yet a thing because tandems were invented in the eighties. They didn't become really common. So until, tandem, to inter- not to interrupt you, but tandem, yeah, is when yeah. there's two people, there's the yeah diver, so, and then so you've got the novice yeah. who is attached physically in a harness to the experienced skydive instructor, the tandem instructor who does all the work. And so you are, in, in essence, a skydive tourist the first time, because it is such an overwhelming experience the first few times you do this. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to stop you. I, I am so afraid of heights. Like you are talking to somebody that will and will never skydive, will never, ever, ever it baffles my mind that somebody, I'm also not a great flyer. It baffles my mind that a human being gets into an airplane and opens the door and jumps out. Like I can't, I just cannot understand it. <laughs> well, I will try to uh, explain yeah. why. Okay. Before I do that, I will say, here's what I tell everybody. If you think you want to skydive or if you think you don't, you are correct. Yes. <laughs> so, so, I'm correct. I am correct. Yes. Yeah. So so no worries. But back in the 90s, tandem skydiving had not yet become widespread. Yeah. So I found a drop zone a couple of mile a couple of hours from my university and I arranged to go take the classes. 
So I did. I went and I took the class and strapped on a parachute and went up. And it's just you. This is, this is you know, there, there's no other option. So you would just have to go out. So here I am hanging off the side of the plane on the strut on that little Cessna, just like the guy that I had seen 20 years before uh, doing the skydive. And, and you look in at your instructor and your instructor says, ready, uh, ready. And they, and they grab your pilot chute and they throw it out into the relative wind. This is called an instructor-assisted deploy jump. And it's the, the way we used to jump. And, and literally, your parachute just rips you off the plane. And there you are, by yourself, miles above the earth. You are the most alone that you have ever felt in your life. And, and there's no one around you, and there's nothing under you. And it is such an amazing feeling because this is the definition of mindfulness. No matter what is bothering you on the ground, no matter what nattering little concerns are in your life, once you go out the door of an airplane, you are laser focused on the here and now and that experience. And, and it is beautiful. I mean, I can't even imagine, but I also find it, um, I mean, there's obviously it's a huge risk. You're risking your life because you don't know if that parachute's going to a thousand percent open, right? But it's also- Well, like, it's- okay, Right. So, so go ahead. Go ahead. This it's, yes, there is a risk. Skydiving is a dangerous activity that can be done safely. I'll give you, for instance, last year in 2021 in the United States, there were over three and a half million skydives. There were 10 fatalities. Wow. That's so, insane. Yeah. So the, the if you are well-trained and your gear is maintained and you do all the proper checks and you are not stupid and you are not vain because skydiving is not forgiving of stupidity or vanity. Mm -hmm. So you have to have an accurate understanding of what you can actually do. Then you're going to be okay. Because we always jump with two parachutes. There's always a reserve parachute. The reserve parachute is packed by an FAA certified rigger. And it's repacked every 180 days and checked. In fact, mine is just about to come back from its uh, semi-annual repack. And, and so it is really safe if you are humble. Yeah. And you are smart and aware. Well, you've done 500 plus jumps. I've done 600 now. Yeah. 600 mm -hmm. times you have jumped out of an airplane. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Do you feel like too, I, I have to ask you because you are somebody that deals with chronic diagnosis and chronic pain. And d d when you say you forget about your worries on the earth, on the ground, it's those 600 times that you've jumped, you're jumping out of the airplane and you're in the air. You're free. Yeah, so, definitely. I mean, okay. okay yeah. So here's, <clears throat> The reason I came back, so in 2019, I came back to skydiving. 
How long of a break did you take? Because I know you 20 year break. There's actually, I've got an SRA number. There's something called the SRA, the Skydiver Resurrection Award. Uh And if you are a skydiver who has, if you've been a skydiver and you have a break of at least 10 years, you can apply for an SRA number. And, and, and so I, my SRA number is like 8,000 something. It's the number of days between your last jump and your resurrection jump when you come back to the school. What made you decide that you were like, I'm done. Like I'm done. I'm going to go, I'm going to do it again. I'm giving it another chance. So I had gone through this really nasty exacerbation. I had, it was massive. It was cognitive Mm -hmm. and, and I'm a brain guy. And so I was terrified because I wasn't able to think in ways that I was able to think the pain had gotten unbearable. I mean, I, I went through a period there where on a, on a standard 11-point pain scale, I was rating myself a 6 to 8 every day. And, and so it was, you know, it was really awful. And my family gave up on me. My wife and kids left. They said, you're not going to get any better. This is not a journey we want to continue with you. And... And right before they did, my son was the last one to leave. And he said, you know, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. That is real. Kevin, I am so sorry to hear that. That's awful. No, you know, I, I honestly, it, yeah, it, it really was awful. But they were terrified. And nobody trains us for life with a chronic illness. Nobody trains us to support people with a chronic illness. And they were overwhelmed. The good people, I love them still. And are you are and, you in contact with them now? Not much. Yeah. Unfortunately. I I, I hope someday that that I am. But, but I don't think I do want to talk about because I've never done an episode about this. Mm-hmm. People can't understand what it's like I mean, right now we started the episode and I'm sitting here like obnoxious lady with this like shoulder compress on because I twisted my neck the wrong way. And it's been for days, like I have to go to the chiropractor, Mm -hmm. but it's really not fun. It really, I really am in pain. And if I had. No, but it's not a contest. Yeah. But no, I'm saying if I had pain like this all over my body or itching or the things that you've described. I, I don't know. Like we're human beings. Obviously, people explain what that's like living with chronic pain. And, well, and so I many people can't live with it. So many people take their own lives. Like it's a really. I was on the verge. Yeah, I was on the verge. Yeah, and and so you know, my so my family left. My my right three weeks after my son left, my dog died traumatically in front of me. <sighs> I mean, I was, I, it was bloat. I've had Akitas for years and Nemo had bloat. It was late on a Sunday evening, tried to save him, were not. And he was really the last thing I was hanging on to at that point. It was like your was darkest, like, darkest hour, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my, the biggest fears I had in my life coming into this was I, I was, I was always afraid somehow that I would lose my mind. I don't know why. I'm a little kid. I was afraid that I would lose my mind that I would be left alone and that I wouldn't handle it well. Mm-hmm. And all of those things happened to me. 
So how did you pick yourself up? Well, you know, I, I, I literally was at the end. And, but my son said this, he said, dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. Now, on the one hand, that's kind of a funny, cheeky teenage thing to say. On the other hand, it was soul crushing. But I really had to think. And I thought, you know, at the time he was like 13 years old, I'm sorry, 14 years old. And I thought, you know, he had, because I had spent so many years dealing with this. And during the same time when my MS was headed to its worst spot, his mother had been dealing with a mystery illness of her own. And so there was a decade of me being a caregiver. And she, she had a very late stage three chromophobia cell carcinoma. Mm-hmm. And she almost died of cancer and they managed to save her at the last instant. So I was so focused on being a caregiver and being able to still make money with my MS that was increasingly getting worse that I literally had. When he told me that, it had been more than a decade since I had done anything just for myself. So he literally had never seen me do something just for myself. And, and I thought, wow, okay, I am at the bottom. I can't see a path from where my life is now to any kind of life that I'm interested in living. I'm going to give myself one more chance. And that was doing two things. One, using my science. Because I had spent, all the way since back in the 90s, I'd been researching why some people succeed or fail under difficult circumstances. And I realized, okay, I've now got to put my research in action in my own life. And the second thing was, I need to go do something just for the sheer joy of it. And for me, that was going back and reclaiming skydiving, even though I can't feel my legs below my knees. And Mm -hmm. even though I knew it was going to be difficult. So I went back in 2019, and I didn't tell them at the time that I had a mess. And we went up, you know, I did the training again, I went up and did. Now, on your first jumps, when you come back doing the AFF method, which is how most people train to be solo skydivers, you jump out and nobody's attached to you. You've got instructors that are hanging on to you. In the first couple of jumps, you've got two instructors, one hanging on to each side, but they can get separated. And so fundamentally, when that door opens for that first time, your first jump back, and the wind whooshes through the cabin of the plane, one of your instructors will lean in really close and look you square in the eyes and say, who's responsible for your life? You better answer quickly, enthusiastically, I am. Because Fear is on the inside of the door, but once you go through that doorway, you go through that fear into this amazing joy and mindfulness and accomplishment. And so I wanted to do that again, and I just and I didn't just want to do it. So it took, normally it takes 25 jumps to get your A license, your first license in skydiving. Mm-hmm. It took me 47 because I couldn't feel my legs below my knees. And I had to learn how to control my legs in free fall, not having the same signals most people have. And I also had to learn how to stand up a landing when I can't feel my feet. Yeah. So, you know, that took some extra work. 
So I got my A license, I got my B license, and I logged about 140 jumps in 2019. In 2020, I set myself a bigger goal. And I said, I want to be a legit skydiver. And that means, in the sport, passing 500 jumps. 500 jumps is where you are eligible for all the licensing in the sport. It's, it's when you're eligible for professional ratings and you can get jobs in the sport. I got a coach rating along the way. And so if I were going to do that in 2020, that meant I was going to have to jump better than one jump a day for the entire year on average. And so that was the goal I set myself. And of course, we had a six-week break for COVID in there when they shut everything down. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I've got a six-day-a-week drop zone five miles from my house. So, you jump out of a plane six days a week? Yeah, in good weeks, sure. I'm, so, in, so I'm in, in shock. But also, I need to backpedal for one second and tell okay. you something. Because I do – part of why I do this and I started this podcast is because I want my listeners, and many of them are going through stuff, right? They listen to this because – they're going through some kind of loss, trauma, whatever it be. Your story is so important, right? What you said, because it's like, I was at my darkest time. And I can tell you, Kevin, and my listeners know this, I was at my darkest time, my darkest time when I didn't want to go on. And you have the conscious de decision as a person to make these decisions to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick myself up. I'm going to do these two things, which is exactly what you did, right? And now look at you and what you're doing and you're on your way. I I think it's so important to remind people that, you know, you hear stories last week. I interviewed Michelle Leopold. She lost her son at 19 to a fentanyl, one fentanyl pill, dead, 19 years old. And that's, it's such a crisis in this country. And she said to me, well, you know, I had a choice. Many people go through the loss of a child. They don't, they don't go on. They don't go on. They make the choice to take their own life. You were in a place where you were in chronic pain, the lowest of the low, lost your family, lost your beloved dog. And then you said to yourself, no, no, I'm, I'm making this decision. And I want my listeners to understand that, that that's one of the biggest reasons why I do this and I did this is so you listen and you understand that we always have a choice as people and life sucks. It can be really freaking hard. You know that. And I know that. And, um, and so I'm, I'm wowed by you number one, because I can't even jump off of a high dive. Um, and, and I find you such an inspiration really, honestly, and, um, and that the, you know, and then you have like double the work, right. Of like learning the choreography of jumping out of an airplane without. So I want people to really understand that and really listen to it. And I'm sorry, I have a big mouth and I had to stop you, but I really needed to say that. That's cool. No, I've got, I've got two responses here and this may be the most important thing that I say. So, so yeah, in 2020, I, I logged 370 jumps and what that meant was, taking myself to my edge mm -hmm. and, and triggering my acute stress response every day. And that's stress is woefully misunderstood, but, but, you know, and then taking myself back 
and resting and relaxing, recovering, and doing it again the next day. And, and the reason why this was important to me was a lot of people come to skydiving because they want to face the fear of heights. My fear was my own body. So, so here are two observations here. One, and, and this follows on what you were saying. Mm-hmm. One, we all believe we know how to be human. But we're actually adapted to be human just well enough to survive. Humans aren't maximizers. We're not optimizers. We're satisficers. We're naturally primal, concrete, resource misers, and focused on the here and now. And no one trains us to be good humans, to be good at being human. So there's no shame, there's no guilt in getting overwhelmed at the things life throws at us. And that's even worse because no one trains us how to live well when we're stuck with something awful Mm-hmm. that we can't get away from, like a chronic illness. The biggest misunderstanding we have about being human is in how stress works. The corollary is we don't understand why rest and nourishment in all their forms are so crucial and cannot be shortchanged. And so what follows from this truth is that we dismiss the one and only place where real lasting change can begin. Being more kind, forgiving, and humble to ourselves. And more important, to our future selves. I love that. That's so so, so true. Yeah. So that's like the first thing. The second thing is, you've seen the, the picture on the cover of my book? I wish everyone could see it. Yeah, this is, so I'll say what it is. So I'm there. It it took us actually eight jumps over six weeks to get this exact photo because I swear to goodness, this story, this is exactly the picture I had in my mind because it tells the story of everything that I do. So I want people to really think about this. So I am, when that photo is taken, it's a beautiful day. The sun's on the horizon. The, the clouds are, are below me, you know, in that beautiful golden hour light. And I've got my, I'm on my belly. I'm in street clothes. So I'm in jeans and a sweatshirt and my no helmet, no jumpsuit. I look like a normal person who has been thrust into this extraordinary circumstance. And that was purposeful. My hair's flying in the breeze and I've got my hands up to my forehead like I'm double saluting. I'm about to sweep them out in a broad gesture. Now, why is that important? Because at the instant that photo was taken, I am 5,000 feet above the planet falling at 120 miles an hour. That means when that instant was captured, my life expectancy is 27 seconds if I do nothing. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing hypothetical about that. Gravity will win. And, and so what am I doing? I am, I've got my hands up and I'm about to do what's called the wave off. And that's a signal every skydiver recognizes. 
explain it in the book. And, and what it means is I am warning everyone in my airspace that I am about to take action to save myself. I am actively in the face of certain death choosing life. So I wave off and I deploy my parachute. And, and that's what I want people to understand. If you feel overwhelmed by what's going on in this world, it begins by you being right here in this moment and being kinder to yourself, giving yourself grace and choosing life. Ugh, I love that. You're amazing. I say this all the time. I feel like I'm, sometimes I'm like, seem like when I'm interviewing my, the, I, the guests that I've been so fortunate throughout the past year and a half plus to me, you included, they come into my life for different reasons, you know, and I believe everything happens for a reason. I say this all the time. It really does. And signs. And I believe in all of that stuff. But what you're saying is just so important. I want for number one, I want you to tell people where they can find you. I could talk to you for two more hours. Where can my listeners find you? What's your social media? I've tried to make it really easy. If okay. you just go to yourlifelivedwell.co, you can find everything. Okay. Including social media links and everything. I am I'm your LL well on all the major platforms. But if you go to yourlifelivedwell.co, you can get my podcast, you can get my social media links, you can see the schedule of uh, 16 different seminars, different regular webinars that we do uh, for specific topics that are, that are crucial to people living with or supporting those with chronic illness. Uh, you can see uh, a page with lots of other guest appearances and, and things like that. What about, Bard. what about, what about like talking to you about skydiving? Kevin, I adore you, but I will never be doing that. <laughs> and that's cool. You know what yeah. the important thing is? The important But I know thing some is, of my listeners might want to skydive. So that's why I'm asking. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you go to the USPA.org, if you're uh -huh. in the United States, you go to USPA.org, there's a page there that's called the Drop Zone Finder. And you can put in your location and find the nearest uh, USPA certified uh, drop zones in your area where you can go take the training and learn to become a skydiver yourself. And, and that's where you begin. I love, I love having you on. Thank you so much. I think, I hope that people listen to your story and really absorb it because it's just, it, it, you're such a, you're an inspiration. Um, and I, I hope that if, you know, if my, one of my listeners is listening and they, they know somebody dealing with chronic pain, which I've heard is from numerous people is, like the worst of the worst. I hope that you reach out to Dr. Kevin J. Payne 
aka Kevin, aka Duber, because you were a Duber back in the day. I'm going to say that. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm a mover. And I'm just honored to have you on. I'm honored to meet you. And in closing, I just want to say one thing. I want to say if you are a listener of mine and you go out of your way to leave me reviews on Apple. I truly appreciate it. Um, And so I just want to point that out. My website has been down. Um, It's under construction. It should be up this week. So if you do want to donate to my show um, and you enjoy listening every week, um, I'm an independent podcaster. I haven't had advertising on the past couple episodes because my my website's been down, but you can buy me a Chardonnay because you know, I love a buttery Chardonnay. So there's a buy me a Chardonnay button and my website should be up by the, the time that this episode comes out. And the last, what I like to close every episode with is what my daddy used to always tell me as a little girl, he would say, be happy by making other people happy. So I try to live my life. Um, and it makes me happy making other people happy. It makes me happy meeting people like Kevin and doing this podcast to try and help people and maybe make you laugh a little bit if you are in a dark place. Um, so be happy. Do something kind for somebody else. It's, it's, it, I'm telling you, it'll make you happy. It makes me happy. So be happy by making other people happy. And Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. You were a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much, Megan. Be well. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.